So 2 Chronicles chapter 2 is on page 308 in the red Bibles that say Holy Bible. If you've got the other Bible in your hand, it's on page 437. Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. He conscripted 70,000 men as carriers and 80,000 as stone cutters in the hills and 3,600 as foremen over them. Solomon sent this message to Hiram, king of Tyre. Send me cedar logs as you did for my father David when you sent him cedar to build a palace to live in. Now I am about to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God and to dedicate it to him for burning fragrant incense before him, for setting out the consecrated bread regularly and for making burnt offerings every morning and evening and on the Sabbaths and new moons and at the appointed feasts of the Lord our God. This is a lasting ordinance for Israel. The temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him, since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him, except as a palace to burn sacrifices before him? Send me, therefore, a man skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue yarn, and experienced in the art of engraving, to work in Judah and Jerusalem with my skilled craftsmen, whom my father David provided. Send me also cedar, pine, and algam logs from Lebanon, for I know that your men are skilled in cutting timber there. My men will work with yours to provide me with plenty of lumber, because the temple I build must be large and magnificent. I will give your servants, the woodsmen who cut the timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of olive oil. Hiram, king of Tyre, replied by letter to Solomon. Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you their king. And Hiram added, Praise be to the Lord the God of Israel who made heaven and earth. He has given King David a wise son, endowed with intelligence and discernment, who will build a temple for the Lord and a palace for himself. I am sending you Huram Abai, a man of great skill, whose mother was from Dan and whose father was from Tyre. He is trained to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, and with purple and blue and crimson yarn and fine linen. He is experienced in all kinds of engraving and can execute any design given to him. He will work with your craftsmen and with those of my Lord David, your father. Now let my Lord send his servants the wheat and barley and the olive oil and wine he promised, and we will cut all the logs from Lebanon that you need and will float them in rafts by sea down to Joppa. You can then take them up to Jerusalem. Solomon took a census of all the aliens who were in Israel after the census his father David had taken and they were found to be 153,600. He assigned 70,000 of them to be carriers 
and 80,000 to be stonecutters in the hills, with 3,600 foremen over them to keep the people working. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that uh, in this next period of time that you would help us um, to quieten our hearts and focus our minds, uh, that by your spirit that we would be learning from your word and uh, thinking through in its application for our lives and uh, not just being uh, hearers of the word but doers as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fun things about growing up in the late 60s, early 70s was the uh, Apollo manned space, space missions to the moon. If you grew up after that period of time, you really missed out. And uh, I love this shot, of, um, which was taken in 1971, when Apollo 15 uh, took the very first uh, motor car to the moon. Uh, one of the astronauts who drove the moon buggy was the, the man in this picture. Can you see that all right from where you're sitting? Yep, good. Uh, his name was Jim Irwin, and Jim Irwin, he's, uh, he's going to be the, with the Lord now, but uh, he was a Christian. And later on, when he returned to planet Earth, uh, he shared something about what, it, what his experience was like for him as he uh, drove the buggy to the foot of um, this majestic uh, mountain on the moon's surface and as he was able to look back to the, uh, the beautiful planet Earth in the distance. And this is what he said, and I quote, he said, There on the lunar surface I knew God's presence very real and very close. How about that? I guess it shouldn't surprise us, so should it? Not really. Because uh, if God is the creator, then he's not just the creator of a particular place uh, or of any particular nation or of any particular planet or of any particular celestial body. Um, God is present uh, not just here, but he's present on the moon. Uh, he's present uh, in the, the Voyager uh, spacecraft that's long ago has left our solar system and is in the, in the unknowns. Uh, God is present uh, in the furthest star that we can see. God is present. In fact, because God is the God of the universe, he's actually greater than the universe, isn't he? And so, which, which means we, we can't kind of think of God in terms of location. Uh, we can't think of God as, uh, of his presence as being somehow containable in any particular place. Now, there's nothing new in this. And uh, as we look at uh, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 2 through to 4 today, we see that uh, King Solomon uh, even understood this issue. Uh, he had to grapple with the fact that 
the God of the universe is, on the one hand, uncontainable, and yet, what was Solomon about to do? He was about to build a house for God, <laughs> a dwelling place for God, a temple. Now, I think, I'm not sure, I think that's what they call a paradox, isn't it? Uh, two statements that appear to be uh, contradictory to one another, uh, but then upon closer investigation turn out that it makes perfect sense. So why don't we investigate that, shall we? Um, if you open up your Bibles at 2 Chronicles, that'd be helpful. And in 2 Chronicles 2, we, uh, we learn about the, the preparations that uh, Solomon needed uh, to do in order to uh, get this particular building project underway. And as I was reading through this, I was reminded of some of those TV shows that you sometimes see you know, on a Sunday afternoon when everyone else is out playing sport or whatever, where they talk about the great mysteries of the ancient world, you know, and they show these big um, <coughs> buildings and constructions and uh, say that uh, how could ancient man possibly have built these things without any technology, you know, maybe they had help from aliens from outer space. So. But how about sheer man manpower? That does the trick sometimes, doesn't it? And this is kind of what we see in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where we read that Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And listen to these numbers. He conscripted 70,000 men as carriers. That's like at a very full stadium at an NRL, at a state of origin match, full of carriers. And, and if you thought that's impressive, then there was 80,000 as stone cutters in the hills 80,000 people cutting stone um, out of the hills in quarries and 3,600 th th 3, foremen um, to oversee them. That's some kind of labour force, isn't it? And uh, that's what Solomon had to do. It's interesting that at the end of chapter 2, if you go down to verse 17 uh, and following, uh, that the chronicler, the guy who wrote Chronicles, he restates the same, these same um, manpower statistics and that kind of makes the, uh, the chapter a nice, tidy sort of unit, doesn't it? Uh, starts with the manpower, finishes with the manpower, but in between, Solomon writes a letter. He writes a letter to a man, or he sends a message rather, to a man by the name of Hiram, and Hiram is the king of Tyre. Tyre is a city in what we'd call these days modern-day Lebanon. And that is a place where great cedar trees grow. Uh, Lebanon is still famous for its uh, cedar trees. So in verses 3 through to 10, Solomon wants to do business with Hiram. And he places an order for timber, especially the cedar logs, and also for skilled tradesmen. Uh, in verse 10, Solomon offers to pay Hiram with the Israel's agricultural prod produce. So wheat and barley and wine and olive oil, that's what he's going to pay in return. So that's the deal. It's got kind of a, a bartering system that's going on there. But it's how Solomon explains the project which is also important. 
So I'm going to read to you from verse 3 down to verse 6. This is his, his message to Hiram, the king of Tyre. And he says, Send me cedar logs, as you did for my father David, when you sent him cedar to build a palace to live in. Now I am about to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God and to dedicate it to him for burning fragrant incense before him, for setting out the consecrated bread regularly and for making burnt offerings every morning and evening on the Sabbath and new moons and at the appointed feasts of the Lord our God. This is a lasting ordinance for Israel. So that's the purpose of the building. But he says, The temple I'm going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? Who can build a temple for him since not even the highest heavens can contain God? God is present everywhere in the physical universe. You know where God is not? God is not in hell. Hell is where God is not. But in all of the material universe, God is completely present. God is not absent from any part of it. There's not a part of the universe and you go there and God is not there. And as creator of the universe, he's, he's therefore greater than the universe. That is, he transcends the universe. So that the highest heavens, as Solomon says, cannot contain God. Now, the Bible draws out some implications uh, from this for us. For example, in Jeremiah 23 and um, Psalm 139, if God fills a whole universe, then guess what? You can't hide from God. <laughs> There's nowhere where you, can, you can't escape him. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. You can, you can get in a submarine. You can go down the deepest depths of the ocean if you like. Or you can book a ticket on Virgin Galactica and get sent out of the atmosphere and you could go to the moon. And, but God's still going to be there. You can't run away from God. You can't escape him. He is everywhere. But neither can you house God in a box. <laughs> and here Solomon makes that point. As does Paul when Paul preached uh, in Athens at the Areopi Areopagus, having gone around the city and seen all of the idolatry and the temples there in, in, in Athens, uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul proclaims that the God who made the world and everything in it he does not live in temples made by the hands of men. And yet, the God who made the universe, the God who transcends the universe, the God who is greater than the universe, is also very personal. He's a personal God. And in the Bible, God shows himself in particular in particular ways at particular times to particular people. And the theologians would, would call that a theophany, when God, God's, God appears, God, is, God exists everywhere in the universe and sometimes 
he makes himself known differently, specially in certain places at certain times to certain people. Think Moses at the burning bush, Moses on Mount Sinai. Think about the times when... Think about even Solomon when God spoke to Solomon in a dream. But he does so for particular reasons. He does so because of his plan and his purpose for humanity and his revelation of himself and his plan and purpose for us. And this is the, kind of, this is the case with the temple. Um, for example, after the temple had been built in chapter 7, which we'll look at next week, uh, there was a theophany, that, that is that there was fire, uh, after it was consecrated, dedicated, there was fire that came down from heaven and we're told that the, the glory of the, of the Lord filled the temple. Um, so much so that the priests had to evacuate. They, they couldn't do their work um, because of the glory of the Lord, God showing himself in that special way at that particular time. Did God live in the temple? No, of course not. But by the temple, God would connect with his people. Um, the temple would teach his people about their relationship with God, about their, the nature of their relationship with God, and also their future. And this is actually important for us because the temple actually shows us something about our future, your future, and my future. For as the God of the universe, he is also the God of all people. He's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of all of humanity. And it included the Gentile king of Tyre. Um, who in chapters 2, verses 11 to 16, he wrote back to Solomon. Let's have a look at what he wrote when he wrote his letter back in verse 12. Verse 11, it says, Hiram, king of Tyre, replied by letter to Solomon, saying, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you their king. Interesting, isn't it? And Hiram added, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. He has given King David a wise son, endowed with intelligence and discernment, who will build a temple for the Lord and a palace for himself. And then, after that introduction, Hiram goes on to say, look, I accept the deal. And, um, uh, and uh, they get the business transaction into motion. For a Gentile king, he sure does sound pretty enthusiastic for Israel's God, doesn't he? But uh, before we get too excited about that, um, it's worth noting that, uh, that he may actually be just be being di diplomatic in this. This could be standard procedure that you say good things about, the other, about your client's God. But what he's saying is absolutely true. And he did acknowledge the greatness of the true God. Uh, whether or not he believed it, we can't, be for, we can't be sure. However, Hiram's, uh, both his acknowledgement of God and secondly, his contribution to the temple 
do hint at something for us. Now, remember when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple courts? Remember that? People had gone to Jerusalem to uh, uh, make sacrifices at the temple. It's a long way to carry your live produce so you could buy something there that you would, that you would sacrifice. And if you come from a long distance, you might have to change your money before you could actually buy something that you could offer as a sacrifice. And so there was a bit of business going on and the money changers had set up business operations in the courts of the temple and the court that they did it was in the court of the Gentiles, the court that was specifically set aside so that non-Jews, Gentiles, could come and worship God. But they couldn't worship God if there was if it had been turned into a marketplace. And this is why Jesus was so angry. In Mark 11, he quoted the prophet Isaiah, as he overturned the tables, he quoted the prophet Isaiah to them saying, uh, where God says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But they turned it into a den of robbers. That is, God's purpose was that all nations, all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, would be able to connect with him at the temple. And here in 2 Chronicles 2, we see that the Gentiles actually helped to build the temple. It was Gentile produce. It was the king of, of, of Hiran who helped to build the temple. But there is another paradox because whilst the temple shows that God, God is saying that he is present, that he is available, that he is approachable and that that is symbolised by the temple, the temple also shows that God is actually unapproachable, that you actually can't connect with him very easily and so how does that make sense in chapter 3 and 4 and we're not going to read through it but in chapters 3 and 4 the chronicler gives us a, a bit of a guided tour around the completed temple building and he gives us the details he gives us details about the, the temple's location the dimensions of the temple, the materials that were used and importantly the furnishings of the temple. So let's have a look at that, shall we? Uh, chapter 3 verse 1, the location had already been determined. We saw that in 1 Chronicles, didn't we? It had been dramatically and miraculously determined uh, when uh, uh, God was, uh, uh, was, was punishing Israel and withheld and the angel of the Lord put his sword back in its sheath uh, as, uh, as David had made a sacrifice uh, to God in Jerusalem uh, on Mount Moriah at the threshing floor of a man called Arona the Jebusite and that threshing floor would be the location for the temple. We saw that in 1 Chronicles. In verse 3, 
the dimensions of the temple would be um, 60 cubits long. Now, that's, by my calculations, that's roughly from the entrance, um, the street entrance to this building, to the back of that wall. That's a, roughly about 60 cubits. And we're told it would be 20 cubits wide. That's roughly from that wall to that wall there. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? What was going on inside the head of the architect of this building? The key part of the temple, uh, which occupied about one-third of the uh, inner space, was the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant, which David had already brought up to Jerusalem, would soon be permanently housed. Let's have a look at... Um, the description of the most holy place. I'm going to read to you again from verse, chapter 3, verse 8 to verse 14. He built the most holy place, its length corresponding to the width of the temple, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. He overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. The gold nails weighed 50 shekels, he also overlaid the upper parts with gold. In the most holy place, he made a pair of sculptured cherubim and overlaid them with gold. The total wingspan of the cherubim was 20 cubits, so from there to there. Uh, one wing of the first cherubim was five cubits long and touched the temple wall, while its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the other cherub. Similarly, one wing of the second cherub was five cubits long and touched the other temple wall, and its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the first cherub. So you've got two cherubs uh, sitting over the Ark of the Covenant, uh, wings touching each of the walls and the inner wings touching one another. Uh, they stood on their feet facing the main hall, and he made the curtain of blue, of purple and crimson yarn and fine linen with cherubim worked into it. Now, that's a lot of cherubim. <laughs> They're like the, the guards, if you like, guarding the, to, the, to the presence of, of the, the throne of God. There's a lot of gold in there, isn't there? Now, uh, they, they estimate that what actually constitutes a talent of gold, it's estimated to be somewhere between... 20 to 40 kilograms is a, is a talent, so it's a big variation there, but you get the idea. There were 600 talents of gold inside the most holy place. That means that there was somewhere between uh, 1.2 tonnes to 2.4 tonnes of gold in the building. That's remarkable, isn't it? Gold was the... Uh, was, was the mark of royalty. And it's appropriate because the temple was the house of, of Israel's true king. And the most holy place is his throne room. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was the throne of God. And so it symbolised God's presence. It symbolised that God... Uh, the ruler of the universe was Israel's 
God and King. Now, this was a very real and a very deep joy for Israel, as you can imagine. Um, such that the, the psalmist would write in Psalm, eight, Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And he goes on to say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your courts than to dwell in the house of the wicked. That the God of the universe was Israel's king. And yet, this throne room, with all of its gold, with all of its splendour, was an unseen world. Almost every, every Israelite never got to see it. Never got to see it. I mean, the builders saw it for a while. Uh, the Levites could enter the temple, but not into the throne room of God. It was only the, the high priest who could enter into the most holy place, and he could only do so one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. He could only do so after significant sacrifice had been made for the atonement of his sins and of the sins of the people. And he could only do it one day a year. So that all that gold, and no, one's, no one could see it. Because <laughs> you just can't enter into the throne room of God. So here's the paradox. that The temple showed that God was present that God was approachable, that God wanted to connect with his people, that God was with Israel. But because of human sin, the temple showed that God was unapproachable, except by the high priest one day of the year. So near, but yet so far. All the gold, all the furnishings, everything that is described for us here by the chronicler in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, the people never got to see it. For in verse 14, a great curtain blocked the way. And friends, it's, it's really only as we, we grasp hold of this, that we grasp hold of the reality that the, the God of the universe is both present but unapproachable, that we can appreciate what Jesus has done for us and we can have confidence. Now, there is, of course, no temple in Jerusalem today. There's kind of the remains of the wall, but that's about it as far as I'm aware. Uh, and I'm glad that there's no temple in Jerusalem today. It was, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, it's a good thing that under God's sovereignty that the temple was destroyed. But if there were a temple in Jerusalem today, you and I, we could just walk straight into the most holy place, unencumbered. We could just walk straight in. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the temple? That curtain was torn in two, miraculously. Symbolising that by his death on the cross, 
that he has paid for all of our sins so that we're no longer separated from the holy God, but we are now able to have uh, an unencumbered relationship with the God who is the God of the entire universe. He's above and beyond the universe and yet he's personal to us. I want you to listen to how the author to the Hebrews um, puts this uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. Just have a look at this. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us by the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Full assured, confident and fully assured to enter. How about that? How about that? Jim Irwin said that uh, when roving around the surface of the moon... Uh, that uh, he knew God's presence uh, very real and very close. And in that, I don't think he was making a theological statement in one sense. He wasn't making the theological statement about uh, God's uh, presence uh, everywhere in the universe. He's, he's not saying, hey guys, I got to the moon here and guess what? I discovered that God's here as well. Uh, that's not the statement that he's making. It was a personal statement that God was with him, just as God is with us. For when we trust in Christ, we are truly connected with God, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. And we don't need a temple. In fact, the temple was only ever a, a model. It was only ever a, a shadow of our future our future in heaven. Now, sometimes as Christians, we can yearn for a greater sense of the presence of God. Do you ever feel that way? Sometimes, perhaps, when we're feeling a bit spiritually flat, things haven't been going well for us, we're a bit down. Or we, we somehow think that it would just be great to have something just a little bit more tangible, a bit more of a tangible um, experience of God, a bit more like a temple kind of theophany. And the danger is that sometimes, uh, particularly in churches, we can be tempted to try to actually create that, that temple experience. Uh, you know, we can uh, try to create an atmosphere, generate an atmosphere which some say is conducive to the presence of God. <laughs> uh, particular styles of music blended with particular lighting and suggestive leadership from up the front which when blended together touch our emotions and uh, make us sense that something spiritual is happening and so we confuse emotions for the presence of God as if God was not present otherwise. But instead, if we truly want to know just how much God loves us, 
and personally loves us, then what we need to do is we need to keep on looking back to the cross of Jesus and the tearing of the temple and what that means in terms of us actually having a full and complete relationship with God here and now through the blood of Christ. And when we reflect on that, we can be overwhelmingly thankful for what he's done for us. So we look back to the cross of Christ, but the temple tells us we also look forward to heaven, where in Revelation chapter 21, you know when John had the vision of, of, of heaven? And in Revelation 21, John describes uh, not a garden, uh, as in the Garden of Eden, uh, not a temple in terms of a holy of holies, but he describes a city, and a city which is, is more beautiful by magnitude than Solomon's temple. It wasn't just the walls of the buildings that were lined, it was the streets aligned with gold. <laughs> and there's jewels and there's... It's, a, it's described in fabulous terms. But there is no temple. I did not see a temple in the city, says John, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Where God, who cannot be contained in the highest of heavens, let alone a building, where God who transcends the universe, is over and above the material world, who transcends all of that, is now with us in perfect, complete, an absolutely satisfying relationship forever. That is the picture of heaven and that is that to which the temple points us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great wisdom in how your plan and purpose has unfolded through the revelation of Scripture. We thank you Father God, that uh, you, the great God of the universe, uh, are actually the personal God for us and for all of mankind. And we thank you, Father God, that the, that which separated us from you has been taken away by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Help us not to be dissatisfied with that. Help us to grapple with it and understand the enormity of what Jesus has done for us and what that means for us in the present and in the future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.